We're reading in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very, the very the least of these saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized and we have um, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of God. Thank you, Dan. Hello again. Whew. It is, a, it is such a joy to be able to celebrate both baptism and communion with you all uh, on, the same, on the same Sunday, to celebrate these important ordinances that Christ gave His church to not only celebrate His grace, but to enjoy it, to experience it afresh. Um, and we experience that, word, that grace in the sacraments. We also experience that grace through the Word of God. And so, um, would you pray with me that God would meet us this morning with rich grace for us to enjoy? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you, are, you have proven yourself to be in Christ Jesus so kind and gracious to the strangest of people, even to your enemies. We were your enemies, and yet you loved us, and you reconciled us to yourself, not counting our sins against us. You made us your friends. More than that, you made us your sons and daughters. And now we get to sit at your table, not as guests, but as family. Well, we're so grateful. We pray your word this morning would speak to us kind words, gracious words that would soften us. And Lord, words that would also convict us, that we might turn away from the miserable things that we nurse, that we nibble on for life, and turn to the, Him who gives life abundantly. We pray this in His mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, our, our series, our Advent series, is sort of just continuing to walk through Ephesians. And this morning, we're going to be looking at really the first six verses of chapter three. There's just the first six of what Dan read, but I asked him to read the whole thing because in Greek, it's all one sentence, <laughs> another one of Paul's run-on sentences. Uh, but we're going to just look at the first six, and it's going to allow us an opportunity to really highlight the theme of the Advent series, which is 
the mystery of Christmas. Uh, Christmas is uh, a time when we celebrate, of course, the coming of Christ into the world. And part of the ways that we celebrate that, as all of our children know, is by the giving of gifts. Are you guys excited about the gifts you'll be getting this Christmas? Yes. Do you know what you're getting? No. And that's exactly uh, the way a kind of mystery works. We know it's coming. We know it's good. We don't know exactly what it is. In fact, the mystery that Paul spends so much time talking about in this letter is a longed-for astonishment. It's been longed for for ages, but when it comes, it's shocking. It is an unexpected anticipation. It is a surprising hope. And in particular, the mystery has been summarized by Paul in various ways. We saw in verse 6, it says, this is the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. No one anticipated that the nations, as nations, not converting to Judaism, remaining Gentiles would become part of the people of God. No one anticipated this. Or again, Paul says in Colossians, God shows to make known how great the, to, among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ in us. No one expected God would not just fill his latter-day temple, he would fill us. And not just the Jews, the sons of Israel, Gentiles would be filled with the presence of God. No one anticipated this. Or in Colossians 2.2, he speaks of the mystery of God as simply Christ. The mystery of God, which is Christ, in whom is all the fullness of riches of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is the mystery. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in verse 4 of our chapter, chapter 3, verse 4. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight to the mystery of Christ. But most students of Scripture agree that mystery of Christ can be rendered this way. When you read my letter, you can perceive my insight into the mystery, namely Christ. Christ is the great mystery, the great present that we celebrate at Christmas and all the riches he gives us. They were unexpected. It was better than anyone ever imagined. And we'll see that in our series. We'll see it here this morning in our three points, but we'll see it throughout this Advent series. And we saw some last week that this, this mystery comes in surprising ways. It comes surprisingly. It is revealed shockingly through suffering. We'll see that this morning. And we see that with Christ, don't we? He, was, he came, he was born in a manger. He was humble. He was humiliated. He was crucified, the most shameful death known to the Roman world. The revelation of the mystery was through suffering. No one expected that. Secondly, it resulted in surprising new arrangements within God's household. A whole surprising economy of God's household. Jesus came and spoke of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, which surprised and confused even his disciples. It was a strange new arrangement, new wineskins for new wine. And this would include, as we'll see in our text, the role of apostles in God's house with new revelation and new members of that household 
Thirdly and finally, we'll see that the news is astonishingly good. It's a greater hope than anyone dared to dream. Not just that Jews and Gentiles will be united together with all ethnicities in Christ, but that heaven and earth itself would be reintegrated, restored, healed. This was bigger than the exaltation of a nation called Israel. It was the restoration of all things. So with that, let's jump right in. Take a first, how was this mystery revealed in suffering? It was revealed in Paul's predicament. Paul is in prison. This would not have been a, a, a credential you wanted to list first off about yourself. Now or then. Can you imagine if I said, hey, next week we're going to have a guest speaker. He's coming from, he's coming from the upstate. I don't know why I picked the upstate. He just got out of the penitentiary. It's going to be great. You know, you got to be like, wait, what's happening? What are we doing? Why is, why is he coming? Right? That's not like a term you typically would expect to find for a leader in the church. He just got out of prison. He's great. You guys are going to love him. Right? But Paul says unabashedly, unashamedly, un, he's, not, he's not even like plastering it over with a smile. He's saying, I'm a prisoner for Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. He's boasting in it. In fact, it's so important. Paul takes a, a lengthy one-sentence digression that lasts from verse 2 to verse 13. Look, look, at, look at the text with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ on behalf of, your, of you Gentiles. Whoa, that's really big. Let me unpack that. Then he unpacks it from 2 to 13. And look what he says in verse 13. The conclusion of his digression is, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, my imprisonment in Rome, which is your glory, my shame, your glory. And then he picks up the thread. He started in verse 1 and verse 14, for this reason I bow my knee. He gets finally back to the point, but he has this lengthy digression because it's really important we understand that Paul's in prison because of the Gentiles, and gladly so. If you remember your book of Acts at all, and if you don't, that's okay, I'll give you a quick summary. In Acts 21, we read about Paul's uh, sort of um, struggles in Jerusalem when he gets arrested. That leads him, finally lands him in a Roman prison, which is where he is when he writes this letter. And it starts with him returning to Jerusalem to give a gift from the Gentile churches to the Jerusalem church, the mother church of Christianity in, that, in, in, in the early world. And he was going to bring this gift, solidifying the unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ. And he comes and his friends say, listen, Paul, I appreciate what you're doing, but you got to know there are not hundreds, thousands of Jewish believers who think you're suspect. They have heard from Jewish opponents that you despise the nation of Israel that you despise the law of Moses, that you despise the temple in Jerusalem, the three great markers of Judaism. So you come there, they're going to kill you. And even the Jewish believers are going to be like, I don't know about this guy. So they said, listen, go into the temple with these other Jewish Orthodox believers, and they're going to perform their vows, shave their head. You go with them and do it and show that there's nothing to this, that when you're as a Jew among the Jews, you're as orthodox as the, as the greatest among them. So Paul agrees and does that. But what happens is he's seen in the temple by some of his opponents from Asia, Jewish opponents who had, who had already uh, countered him. 
And they saw earlier that day Paul walking in the marketplace with a Gentile, specifically an Ephesian named Trophimus. And when they saw Paul later in the temple courts, in the courts of the Jews, where the Gentiles are not allowed to be, they, mistake, they mistakenly thought he has, was with this Gentile. He, was, he wasn't, but they, they mistook it for the same Gentile. And they lost their blessed minds. And a huge riot takes place in the temple. The Roman army has to come and, and literally carry Paul out of the mess. Otherwise, he would have been killed. And then it landed him in prison. Paul's literally in prison for the sake of the Gentiles, in his battle and fight for the Gentiles. It makes me think of Martin Luther King Jr. You know Martin Luther King spent, spent a lot of time in prison? Do you know how many times he was imprisoned? 29 times. 29 times. Either for the civil rights causes or uh, just... Uh, trumped up, like when he was standing outside of a court waiting for his friend to come out, he was arrested for loitering or going 30 miles out of 25. I mean, they arrested this man every opportunity they had. And he was arrested for the sake of his brother, his brethren, his brothers and sisters whom he was fighting for. Can you imagine what that felt like for them? Now, I want you to imagine something very different. Imagine history, an alternative history, where the center of Western Christianity wasn't Rome. Imagine in this alternative universe, the center of Christianity by the accidents of history landed in North Africa where so many great Christian giants emerged in the second through fifth century. Imagine that became the center. And African Christianity was the predominant Christianity of the West. And imagine like sort of a negative film in America, white slaves, black majority culture. And imagine everything in reverse, right? But now, Martin Luther King is still Martin Luther King. A black man going to prison for his white brothers and sisters. That's Paul, a Jew, going to prison for his Gentile brothers and sisters. And he's saying, guys, I'm not ashamed of this. It's my glory, it's your glory. This is how the the mystery is revealed. Paul's predicament is an exquisite expression of his whole mission. I exist for the sake of the Gentiles coming in. I suffer for the sake of the Gentiles. Listen to what Paul says. Um, I think this is on the screen uh, from Colossians. Look what he says. Now, that's, that's small text, so if you can't make it, just listen. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Speaking to the primary Gentile Colossian church, And in my flesh, listen to this, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I mean, can you imagine that statement? Christ suffered and accomplished redemption, but redemption still needs to be applied in the real world. And Paul's saying, there's more suffering that needs to be done to bring the gospel to bear. And I am filling up in my own flesh for your sake, Colossae. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. This is almost verbatim, Ephesians 3, verse 2. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his holy ones. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery 
which is Christ in you. Or later in Colossians, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face. Just like many in these house churches around Ephesus had not seen Paul face to face. They did not know him personally, but he wants them to know, I'm in prison for you. This isn't egoism. It's not boasting. He's, he's, a, he's asking them to join the great drama he's a part of. Would you celebrate this great redemptive drama we find ourselves in by the grace of God? And we'll talk next week more about how Paul's imprisonment for the Gentiles is actually a clear display of God's victory to the powers and principalities that oppress him. It's actually displaying God's victory, ironically. We'll see that next week. But we need to move on to the next point, which is not only is, uh, is Paul's predicament spelled out here in this lengthy digression, but he digresses to spell this out in order to underline his unique position. He has a unique role in the economy of God, in the administration of redemption, in the household stewardship. He has a unique, unique stewarding role. That's what he says in verse 2. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3 with me. Assuming that you have heard, because many of them don't know Paul personally, of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When did Paul write briefly about this revelation, you might ask? Some think it was the letter to Colossians. I think it's far more likely he's talking about this letter. He's already been talking about the mystery. Remember way back in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10? If you want to turn there with me to refresh, we'll, we'll be back there in a moment. But Paul said, praises God for lavishing all wisdom and insight onto the people of God, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, which is what? As a plan, as a stewardship, as an administration for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, whether on heaven or on earth. And then he's been unpacking it these last two chapters. So he's saying, you, you already have some idea of my insights into the mystery that was uniquely given to me specifically as an apostle. Right? In verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2, he talks about at length the unification of Jew and Gentile. He's already been talking about this mystery. And now he's saying, so you know, you have some glimpse into my knowledge and insight of these things. It is unique to my role as an apostle, as a steward of the mysteries of God, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. This is his divine calling. He did not receive it from men. He didn't invent it himself. It wasn't like the film Apostle where he baptized himself and declared himself an apostle. Christ called him. In the great letter of Galatians, where many critics are questioning Paul and challenging his apostleship, Paul begins the letter. He, he comes out fighting the very first verse of Galatians 1. Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Immediately sets up, my apostleship is not from Jerusalem. I love Jerusalem. I know those guys. My apostleship did not come through them. They did not lay hands on me. They did not give me apostleship. Christ did. I have unique authority in the household of God, a unique role. 
And indeed, he goes on to say that. Look, look again in Ephesians 3, verse 4 and following. When you read this letter, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to whom? His holy apostles and prophets. There's a unique role here in God's household for the, that the apostles carry. And he also mentions the prophets, which we'll get to in a moment. But he's mentioned the apostles and prophets previously. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19, he says, To the Gentiles, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, this is the mystery, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. There's lots of household language here. Built, that's a household term, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Paul sees his role and understands his role, and he wants the Ephesians to understand and for us to understand his role was unique and foundational, a foundational authority. Christ himself, the cornerstone, he goes on to say, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple. That structure is a household word. Verse 22, in him you also are being built. That's a household. All that is oiko language from the Greek, which means house. So he's, he's using this strong household language. So when he says in chapter 3, verse 2, this household rule has been given to me, this household, this stewardship role, he's using the same sort of, he's in the same metaphorical universe to describe his role in the house of God. And in particular, this role, as the word prophet suggests, it wasn't just apostles, but also prophets who received new revelation. Remember, there had been no prophecy in Israel since Malachi fell silent 400 years before Christ. Now there's prophecy. Now God has spoken in fresh ways. And that revelation comes to the holy apostles, but also prophets in the New Testament. Other writers of Scripture who were not apostles, but were prophets that God established to be means of revelation to us, to make known to the Gentiles this mystery. It is a surprising thing, this mystery. Look what he says again in verse 5. It had not been made known to the sons of men in other generations as it's now been revealed. This is new revelation. This isn't just waxing eloquent on Moses and the prophets. This isn't just rehashing Moses and the prophets. This is new insights, new revelation that's been entrusted to the apostles and prophets of that foundation stone, that foundation groundwork for the church, which is why we study not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as authoritative and as the very Word of God. And again, it's new information that we need. Look on the screen from Romans chapter 16 where Paul mentions this mystery again in Revelation. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, because it is his. It's not Jerusalem's gospel. It's not the gospel Peter received. Although its content is identical, he received it directly. This is my gospel, <laughs> the gospel according to Paul. And the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. It's not that it's new revelation because it's brand new ideas. It's been there all along. It just was kept secret. And now it's been made known. It's now been disclosed. And look at this. 
and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the nations. Now, wait a second. I thought we just said this is new information. How could the prophetic writings of the Old Testament now be the means by which the revelation is made known? And the answer to that is simply, with the new insights God's given us, the prophets light up, as does the law of Moses and the Psalms, with Christ's beauty. It was there all along, but man, hindsight's 2020. And the brilliance of Christ shining back through the Old Testament. St. Augustine, another a great North African Christian, said, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Do you remember the road to Emmaus incident in Luke's gospel? After Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, and the word went out, but the disciples didn't believe. And two of the disciples are walking on their way from Jerusalem to a village named Emmaus. And while they're there, a stranger joins them who they do not recognize. And they're talking, and the stranger innocently asks, what are you guys talking about? And they're sort of in disbelief. How do you not know? How do you not know what's happened? Jesus of Nazareth. He was a great prophet of God who worked wonders, and they crucified him. And what's worse, to throw more confusion and more heartbreak, some of the women in their hysteria says they saw the tomb as empty. And Jesus says, as the stranger, still not yet recognized, so slow to believe. And what does he open up? There was no book of Romans. There was no gospel of Luke to go to. He opens up Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the Jewish Bible in some total. The Tanakh, the Torah, T, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketavim, the poems, the Psalms. He opens it up and shows them himself through the entire text. And it says their eyes were opened, their hearts burned within them. The mystery was there all along, we just didn't see it. But now our eyes have been opened. And now we see the beauty of what it is God's doing in the world. In fact, let's take a look at that content in more detail, shall we? Paul's preaching. What is the content of this mystery? What is the actual content? Well, he says it in verse 6. We've already noted it. This mystery is, which actually isn't in there in original Greek. That's just filling it in because you'll notice translators try to make Paul's awkward sentences a little bit more readable. So they'll punctuate and add things to it. It actually just goes right into that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. This is the content of that mystery. Members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Why does Paul write in such run-on awkward sentences? Is he just bad at writing? He probably didn't write these himself. In fact, it seems to be extraordinary when he actually says, I am writing this portion with my own hand meaning he usually had a secretary who wrote these things down for him. Why was he so bad at dictating (laughs) letters? And I think the reason why, especially Ephesians, which is filled with run-on sentences, is is simply this. Paul is excited. Paul is passionate. And he can hardly catch his breath. When he says, I'm a prisoner, he's not wringing his hands and going, but guys, it's cool, it's cool. He's like, I'm a prisoner, and let me tell you why. Right? He's excited about the opportunity he has to suffer for Christ and to suffer for the Gentiles, to to carry the glory of the cross in his own ministry. And likewise here, he's, he's, he's unpacking the mystery that you Gentiles are fellow members, same body, 
He's, he's actually inventing new words that do not exist in Greek to convey in his excitement what's happening here. Susoma is the word. It's a, no one's ever seen that before. But it's him saying, body with, you're a body with Jews and Gentiles. He's so passionate and overflowing with this, uh, with this vision that God's given him. It is a beautiful picture, isn't it? That God saves Gentiles as Gentiles. That God is going to save all the nations. And that they will sit at table together. Jews did not eat with Gentiles. They did not do that. And now this beautiful picture, Jews and Gentiles sitting down at the same table, breaking bread, drinking wine, and celebrating God's grace. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But it doesn't explain Paul's passion. I mean, why is Paul so committed to this? Is it just because it's his divinely given job? Why is he suffering so willingly, so gladly to see this unification of Jew and Gentile in Christ? And the answer is, is because it's the tip of the spear. It is the beginning of a new creation. It is the proof in the pudding that God is already restoring all things in heaven and on earth to himself, uniting them in Jesus Christ. We'll see more about this next week, but for the powers and principalities that ruled the nations as gods who are not gods and as lords who are not lords, who had authority over the nations, now see the nations coming under Israel's God, but not as Israel. They know their reign is over. Their power has been taken from them. When Jews and Gentiles sit at the table together, it is a declaration of not just war, but V-Day to the powers and principalities. I'm preaching next week's sermon. So we'll get back to the text. <laughs> Remember the mystery he mentioned most recently, going back to Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. The mystery there is what? God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ Jesus, uniting all things in him. That is what is happening. And Jew and Gentile coming together is the beginning of it all. Not only being reconciled to God, but being reconciled to one another. When Jews and Gentiles sit down at the table to eat, to break bread and drink wine, it's more than a surprising new social arrangement no one expected. It's a cosmic sign. Indeed, not just to the principalities and powers, to the whole universe. It's a sign to all of creation, to the whole created order. Look on the screen from Romans. This is our last text here before we get to celebrate this and enjoy it. Paul writes this. I love this text. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He, personifies creation itself and says it's waiting and longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you and me, but we're hidden right now. We're hidden in the world. One day you and I will be revealed at the resurrection. All of creation, the birds singing outside, the sun's rising and setting, the earth's quaking, it's all groaning for the revelation of you as a son of God in all of your glory through Jesus Christ. Look what he goes on to say. For creation was subjected to futility, to frustration, 
Not willingly, creation didn't want to be frustrated, but because of him who subjected it, God, in hope that the creation itself would one day be set free, liberated from its slavery to corruption. And obtain what? Obtain what is yours. Obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth up to right now. And not only in the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That means we already have a taste of this liberation, this freedom. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The freedom of glory. We who behold glory of God in the face of Jesus are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Our outward person is wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Already we taste the glory of the freedom of the children of God. And already creation sees it and longs for it. When we sit down at the table, we are expressing the glory of our liberation. And we're anticipating not just the end of the old order, the corrupt order of the powers and principalities, but the dawning already of the new order, the new creation has begun. That's what we're doing when we sit at this table. It signals our unity as brothers and sisters. It signals our liberty from bondage. Bondage to sin, bondage to decay, bondage to death. People who are free from the fear of death. Fear from the free from the power of sin. We sit as free men and women, as free sons and daughters of God at this table enjoying the first, first fruits of the Spirit, even as we yet groan inwardly for our full redemption, the resurrection of our bodies. Creation itself knew something changed when the God of the universe entered into it through Jesus Christ. When God was born into this world through Mary, the angels sang, when he carried the cross of our sins to accomplish the redemption of all things, literally the earth shook as if it trembled at the presence of something so holy carrying something so awful. When he rose from the dead, the earth shook again. That same one who caused the mountains to crumble is here with us. He is present as host of this table. And he invites you, if you know him, if you have decided to follow him, just as baptism marks our entrance into the people of God, communion celebrates our ongoing participation as a member of the household. We come not as guests to this table, but as family members. But it's better than that. Not only is Jesus the host of this table, do you know what he offers you at this table? Himself. This bread is my body broken. This cup is my blood. When you eat and this bread and you drink this cup in faith, you don't just receive a crumble of bread and wine that you thought was grape juice. <laughs> you receive Christ himself, and not a portion of him, all of him. And you take him into the inner depths of your being, and he mingles with you in the depths of you and transforms you from the inside out. 
This isn't mysticism. This isn't magic. It's relationship. It's sitting at a table and having table fellowship with Christ in the fullness of His presence. And so we're going to, in a moment, we're going to sing. I encourage you to sing your hearts out. And that's going to be part of our preparation to come to this table. If you don't know Christ and you would like to talk more, I'll be standing over here and I would love to talk with you, to pray with you. And then if there are others, uh, some of our women's care team can stand or other elders, we would love to just pray with you uh, while we sing. And so would you pray with me now as we prepare our hearts to enjoy the riches of His grace?